Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall onto the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sira. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into our hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Father God, we come before you with humility because we see in this glimpses of you at work among your people and through your people. So Father, we come before you this morning submitted, submitted to hearing from you, and submitted to becoming more like you because of the time we spent together. Father, we pray for Jackson. Would you fill him with your spirit, Lord, that he really would speak your words after after you, Father, and that you would um, give him the grace and the ability to communicate your truth in a way that really does bring about transformation because of your work in us, Father. So again, we just submit ourselves to you and submit Jackson to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Uh, I don't kiss everyone who reads the scripture. (laughs) Just my wife, that's right. (laughs) It is really good to be back. It's great to reconnect with a lot of you that we've met over the summers. It's always a privilege to be here, so thank you for the invitation to come. I think I shared with you last week that this time next year we will be here permanently, and we will be established and be engaged with some of the things from our home community here in the city of Natalia and in, in, in this region. 
Folks, here, here it is. If you kind of want that Twitter statement for the morning, here it is. There's a left-handed gospel for left-handed people. There's a left-handed gospel for left-handed people. Now, a disclaimer. If you're left-handed, this is not being critical of you. I know in the Middle East and Africa, using your left hand is, can be an insult because of what the left hand is used for. But maybe you know that 11% of the world's population are left-handed. Jason, are you left-handed? There you go. Let me show you some famous people that Donna's going to run the PowerPoint for me. <laughs> Here's some famous people. Beethoven, the president of Kenya. In fact, there was just a long article about being left-handed and how left-handedness is being perceived differently, especially in Africa. Former President Obama, Michelangelo, Mark Zuckerberg of, of Facebook fame, Albert Einstein. So if you're left-handed, you're in really good company. This is not about left-handed people. Instead, this is really about who God chooses to use. Who does God empower? Who does God fill with his spirit and use? And he uses, if I may say it this way, broken people. He uses broken people. Let me pray. Father God, we invite you into this space. Of course, we know you're here because you're everywhere all the time. Really, that invitation is for our sake. We're asking you, would you... Whisper in our, in our ear, would you nudge us in our heart? Would you fill us with your spirit? For your spirit is our teacher and convictor, the one who guides us, the one who makes much of Jesus. And Father, I would pray that anything that I would say that is not of you, would you graciously allow it to be forgotten? But as Donna prayed, it's when I say your words after you, we claim the promise in Isaiah 55, your words never return to you without you accomplishing your agenda in the hearts of people. We trust that again in this moment. And may we be like in the book of James, not merely hearers of your word, nodding our head, taking a note, and leaving here no different, but may we be doers of your word, putting it into practice, first and foremost in our relationship with you and then with others. Now, with our heads bowed, let me give you a moment to pray. And Maybe it's just this simple prayer this morning. God, use my left-handedness. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at Judges for a couple of weeks. I'm going to go to Jakarta and miss one of the weeks here in August, and and Mark will take that, and then Dindy's going to pick one up in September. Let me show you the theme, Don. If you put up Judges 21, here's the theme of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Was no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Frankly, could that not be the theme verse for a lot of our lives at times? We have a king, but we choose not to listen to the king. There is a cycle in the book of Judges that we're going to see, and I'm going to introduce it today, and we'll come back to it and just kind of remind us of it. Donna, right here, you see that you see this theme, and let me impose it upon this story. You see the idea of rebellion, verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then there's an oppression. God does things to get his children's attention in verse second half of, of verse 12. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And then in this process, there's repentance. The children of Israel finally wake up and realize, oh, I think God's got our attention. And there's repentance in verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And then there's deliverance through a judge, a deliverer. Second half of verse 15, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. And then there's peace. 
That day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. And then the cycle begins again with rebellion. And we'll see this as we go through and how God raises up judges to deliver his people in the midst of the rebellion. Now, the book of Judges, in a lot of ways, is our story. And we're going to see that in that pattern of behavior. I think we can impose that on our own lives. And we could see that that's true in our own lives, that we have this cycle in our own lives of where we rebel and God reminds us and God delivers us and we submit ourselves and we live in peace and then we start over again. So let's take a look at this story and let me put a map up here because I love maps. Look with me again at verse 12. Again, the Israelites did uh, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Now, he, what he does, he also gets the Ammonites, the Amalekites, to join him to attack Israel and then subdue Israel. And he makes his residence then, and you see up here in Jericho, here it's called the City of Palms, but that would be the city of Jericho. And the reason Jericho is because if you've ever been to Israel, it is a great location. It's just off the Jordan River. It's down by the Dead Sea. It is a lovely, beautiful area. The mountains are just a little bit behind it. And he wanted this area. This would have been a very choice area for him to reign from. He was close to Moab, Moab just being on the other side of the river. But he was also close to Israel that he was now subjecting them under his thumb. Verse 15, and again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer. Now it says a left-handed man. The book of Judges was written in the language of Hebrew, which was the language of these people at the time still is the, the language of the people, but it was written in, the, in Hebrew. And, and when you translate this left-handedness, what this means is that he was crippled. Something happened with his right hand. He was either born deformed or something happened to him, and he had no use of his right hand. Now, right-handedness meant strength. In fact, Benjamin, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, means son of my right hand. And so you had your right hand, it was strength, especially for someone who was in power. To be left-handed in this culture was considered weak. He was an unlikely hero, so to speak. He was an unlikely judge. If you had a vote, this isn't the guy they would have chosen to deliver him. He appeared weak as he went to the king of Moab. He would appear weak as a left-handed man. Look with me at verse 16. And Ehud made a double-edged sword about a cubic long. There's two cubics. One's 18 inches and one's 12 inches. This is probably the shorter cubic that was used, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Now, he knows that because of his deformity, he is not probably going to be checked. He has seen this king several times taking tribute to the king on behalf of the Israelites. And so he's probably not going to be checked. He's not, they're not threatened by him because of his left-handedness. So he makes a sword. Don, let me show a sword here. He makes a sword that looks like this, and he straps it probably to the inside of his thigh versus the outside of his thigh underneath his garment. And the guards wouldn't have checked him, and so he could have hid this very easily. And this kind of adds now, this is the key part to the story. Verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And I love this phrase, I love the Bible and some of the statements that it makes. And he was very fat. Now, we're talking very large. Let me show you a picture of Jabba the Hutt. 
that maybe you're a Star Wars fan. This is from movie three or six or seven, depending on where you are in this thing. But there's Job of the Hunt. I mean, this guy was very large. Part of it is to let us know, to kind of give us a clue that he was getting fat off the tribute that was being brought, that he had conquered them and he was living in this place of power and that he was gaining all this and he was getting large in the process. After Ehud had presented, verse 18, the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. Another way in the Bible to let us know, it was a large tribute. Silver, gold, probably produce, any number of things that it took several people to bring to the king. In this tribute, really, this tax is what really put a burden on the people where they began to rebel because there was so much weight on them to provide this over and over and over again. Let's look at verse 19. And and folks, you can't make this stuff up. When someone talks to me about the Bible being real or not, I go, you ought to just read some of these stories. You couldn't make this stuff up. Verse 19. He pays the tribute. He sends his guys away, and he too leaves for a little bit. He goes a few kilometers away, probably to a boundary stone is really what that means. He goes to a certain place everybody knew, and then he returns. And he says to the guards, oh, I got a word from God for him. Now, he has no respect for Yahweh because what was typical in those days that when you conquered another country, you conquered their gods. It wasn't like he lived in awe or respect of Yahweh. But still, he was interested. And so so Ehud comes back, and he goes and says, I got a word for the king. And so he goes into this chamber, this upper chamber, this cool chamber that included a bathroom. It's kind of his place, his kind of private place. And it says the king gets up off the throne and bends down to listen to what he who had to share. And Ehud is so smart. He probably says this softly where the king has in even more. It's a word from God. And then he reaches under his garment and he takes out this cubic sword and he shoves it into his stomach. Now, he doesn't pull it out or he's unable to pull it out. He shoves it in and it's so sharp, it says the fat begins to swallow it up. And we know he's dead because of the language that is used here. That he began to, I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying it. He what? Pooped his pants. That's an indication for us that he's dead. He's released himself. Ehud then closes the door and locks it. And it's interesting, there's... They had very complicated locks in these days already. Big keys, but complicated locks that would keep people out. And so he locks the door from the inside, and he climbs out, and he leaves. It says the servants wait an uncomfortable amount of time because they think that the king is relieving themselves. Part of the reason is because of the smell that they begin to get. And so they wait, and they wait, and they wait. They don't want to embarrass the king. And then eventually, they're so uncomfortable, they unlock the door, they go in, and they find the king is dead. What does Ehud then do? Look with me at verse 27. It says, Ehud goes into the hill country. He takes a shofar, a big shofar, which is a horn, a trumpet, and he blows it, and he gathers the children of Israel. He gathers the people in this 
hill country, and he says, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now let me go back to this map and take a look. And then it says they go to the forts. Why? Because the Moabites at this point are going to try to escape from Jericho back to Moab where they would be safe. And so the Israelites strategically are going to cut them off. So they beat them to the fords, and they're going to then kill them as they come. They're going to suppress, and they're going to defeat their enemy. God raises up a left-handed man to do a work. There's a left-handed gospel for left-handed people. Now, what do I mean by left-handed people? I'm borrowing a page from Ehud. He was left-handed because of a physical issue, not because he was unable to use his right hand, but it, or because he, he was able to use his right hand, but because he was unable to use his right hand. He was viewed as non-threatening, less capable, not to be taken seriously. He was looked down upon because of the physical limitations, his weaknesses, a brokenness. But isn't this exactly who God chooses to use? God chooses to use the broken the hurting, the needy, the damaged, because it makes his name great. Look with me again at verse 28. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. The Lord has given. All through the Bible, you see this. There's a pattern over and over again. A quick survey of the Bible will show you that Ehud was not the first left-handed person that God chose to use. Abraham's over 100 years old when God finally gives him a son. Moses was a stutterer when God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And he stutters and says, but God, 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 I'm not the one to be able to do this. Joshua three times is told to be strong and courageous because he's fearful. A religious terrorist named Saul sought out Christians to cast them into prison or to kill them becomes a man named Paul. Normally, as you read through times of texts of this, of this time period, it is always the first child that is used. It's always the firstborn son that is used. And yet God has a pattern of using the secondborn son. He uses women in a male-dominated culture. It is the pattern of God to use what doesn't seem normal, doesn't seem appropriate, because it brings him the greatest glory. It makes his name great. Not the strong, but the weak. Do you realize the world looked upon Jesus as a left-handed man? It was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, written several hundred years before the birth of Jesus. And we'll put it up here on the screen, Isaiah 53, 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. We held him in low esteem. The world looks to Jesus and does not see the strong, handsome king like Saul. They saw someone, they go to ask the question, what's so good about this guy? And yet the very son of man comes with great power and clarity in who he is and what he chooses to do. He was born of a single mother. He was born in a cave. He was charged with being a liar and offered 
offering false hope. He was thought to be crazy because he saw himself as the promised Messiah, the deliverer. He was killed as a common criminal. Jewish leaders and Romans alike thought they had finally tossed him aside and had discarded him once and for all. But God raised him from the dead, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is our greater Ehud. Ehud had an issue. In fact, every judge we're going to look at has an issue. Next week, we're going to look at the judge, Deborah, and we're going to see in that story a brokenness and an incompleteness. No judge, no deliverer could ever stand in the place to to provide for us perfect deliverance until the one and perfect judge has come, the person of Jesus. Ehud's story is our story. Every one of us in here have left-handed issues, something that makes us incomplete, less than perfect. For some of us, these are more profound for others, but we all have weaknesses. We all have brokenness. We all have experiences that make us less than perfect. Most pastors I know, when they get up in the pulpit to preach, are greatly concerned that if you really knew them, you would not respect them. I I battle with that same thing. If you really knew me in my fallenness and my brokenness and in my battles and my struggles, but there's a left-handed gospel for left-handed people. The gospel literally means great news, great news. Great news that the God of the universe has come and lived among us in perfection in the person of Jesus. He has provided for us what we can never provide for ourselves. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's a gospel for left-handed people. Why? Why? Because this is key, folks, because the gospel is not for perfect people. The gospel is not for perfect people. Perfect people don't need good news. They think they are good news. They've convinced themselves that they can do everything they need to do in this life. They don't need a gospel. We recognize that on our own, we are unable to do good, to do enough. And that those who are followers of Christ recognize that we need a left-handed gospel for a left-handed person. But you know what? We have, some of us have a hard time willing to admit we're left-handed. We actually fear our weaknesses. We fear being seen as weak and people speaking of, of us as weak. And it's really why most of us put so much time and energy into what we look like and how we act and the things we say about ourselves. It doesn't take long when you're with someone to hear what they're about as they keep pushing their resume. Look who I am. Look what I've done. And frankly, it's because they're uncomfortable with the brokenness and the issues in their own life. We want to appear like we figured it all out. We're concerned that our weaknesses will communicate that we're weak. Fearful that we'll be judged as being inadequate. We have a reputation to maintain. At my church, the average age is 31. Man, I am grandpa compared to who attends my church, the church that I'm pastor back in Chicago. 
And it's interesting when they all say, you know, we don't want to fit in. We want to be our own person. And then they all shave the side of their head and cut their hair short, wear skinny jeans and wear dark glasses. I mean, you all look the same. (laughs) We're embarrassed by our shortcomings. But God delights in our shortcomings in our weaknesses, in in our less than perfect lives, because it's in those moments of brokenness and weakness that God does his best work in us. It's in those moments when we go, I'm unable, look who I am, look what I've done, look what I've experienced. It's when God says, this is when I'm going to empower you and do something miraculous through you. God uses left-handed people like Ehud, like you, like me, as gifted and as talented as Paul, and Paul's kind of our Christian all-star, as as Paul is gifted and talented, he understood his left-handedness was a gift to him. Let me put up 2 Corinthians 12 here. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, which is in Greece, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulty. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Man, that is an upside-down paradigm for us. We find humility in our willingness to say, I need help, God. Our weaknesses keep us humble as we're reminded we are far from perfect and we rely on the presence of God and the work of the Spirit in our life. God opposes the proud, but he elevates the humble. There's some of us in this room that are recovering from alcoholism, from drug addiction, from porn addiction, from having an affair, from being gossipers, overeaters, being judgmental. We're left-handed people. We know our weaknesses, and we're grateful for the strength of what Jesus has done in us and through us. Some of us have lost our jobs. We're left-handed people. But we've learned that God is more than able. Some of us have chronic pain. It never goes away. We haven't been healed from it. We haven't been delivered. We live with it day in and day out. We're left-handed people. Some of us experience tragedy in our lives, and we're reminded that life is less than perfect. We're left-handed people. We live with this pain, this hurt. Don and I have lost a child. We're reminded of this all the time, just recently. Reminded me again, fresh, like it happened yesterday. I'm a left-handed person. But as followers of Jesus, when we know the hope that comes for the fullness of the Spirit in our life, when we know what healing means, and when we engage in our brokenness and the humility, but we know that in our weakness He is strong, God turns that around and He uses that in other people's lives. 
Let me remind you what Paul says to the same church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. I found this. It was always in my Bible, but it jumped off the page to me after the death of our son because God kept bringing other couples into our life who had lost kids. That's kind of the last thing I wanted to do. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. We know this in our brokenness and our left-handedness. We know our need. We are humbled by our need. We know that God has to be sufficient that we cannot. He makes up for our shortcomings. We learn this. And then we sit down with someone and we go, been there. I'm left-handed too. When our son died, I had a couple dads reach out to me. And they said, I've lost a child too. Knowing they'd been where I had been. Knowing they'd gotten the other side of the pain and the brokenness. I needed to hear that. I needed to know. This pain won't last like this forever. You sit down with your brokenness. You sit down and you look someone else in the eye and you say to them, I have been there. I know what this is like, but look how God has met me. Look at the comfort and the hope that I have found, the healing that I have found. Yes, I live with the scar. I still have the limp. I'm left-handed. But look what God's glory has been able to declare through me. There's a left-handed gospel for left-handed people. Thank goodness. The gospel is not for those who are perfect. It is for those that are broken. We are broken. Now, let me ask you a question. How are you using your left-handedness to the glory of God? How are you using your left-handedness to the glory of God? Because let me tell you what we do. Many of us hide the brokenness. And there are people who are experiencing the same thing that need to know. You got to the other side of this. How are you going to use your brokenness for the sake of God's glory? We're going to come to the table here in just a moment. I'm going to help us think through what this means, then the Vic will come up and explain to us what we're going to do. But the communion table is for broken people. It's for left-handed people. It's only for left-handed people. It's only for broken people. If you're not broken, if you're not damaged, if you're not left-handed, frankly, this table's not for you because it is only for those who recognize they have a need. Now, this table is for anyone who has a need. It is for anyone who recognizes that they have been healed through the gospel. They have been healed through the hope of what Jesus has done on the cross. You don't have to be a regular attender here. If you are able to say, I'm left-handed and the cross has healed me, that I have found my hope in the work of Christ, we invite you to come. Come. You will stand in line with broken people. But if you're not one who has recognized your brokenness, you should not come. Because frankly, this would mean nothing to you. We come to this table to be reminded we're broken, but there's hope. We're broken. 
but one who's come has lived a life that you and I couldn't live, to die a death that you and I should have died. And we find our, our hope in him. Matthew 26 says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and we given thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that it is for left-handed people. We thank you that we can come to you. You already know fully what has happened and done, we have done in our life. We have no reason to ever be ashamed or to feel the guilt to come to you, a father who is loving, a father who receives and forgives as we are willing to confess it to you. You are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. So, Father, we now come to this table that reminds us over and over again, we're left-handed people, but there was one who came who was considered left-handed, but he was perfect, that he lived a life that we have not been able to live, to die the death that we should have died. We come, Father, to humble ourselves again and to say thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.